Good morning, beloved. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is a joy and a privilege to be with you all today. Uh, I do bring you greetings from the saints and the elders at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. They are praying for me and praying for y'all. And uh, we have had a heart for Brazil. We have a long-term relationship and partnership with Rick Denham and Fiel Ministries uh, over 25 years together. And uh, Rick and I had the privilege of co-laboring together uh, at Nine Marks. And so... Uh, It's a particular personal joy to be with you all today. Uh, uh, The topic that that I'm going to preach on is a biblical vision of the church. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're going to look at the whole book. So this will be an expositional sermon. I hope the main point of my sermon is the main point of the the passage. But we're going to do a a flyover, an overview. So a a little bit of a different type of sermon. And and, uh, I want to start, though, with uh, a question for you all. Here's my question. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the church? Is your impression, your, your feeling, is it, is it positive? Is it negative? Is it indifferent? Maybe a combination of all the above? Now, what if you asked your friends or, or your family or, or your coworkers, what would they say? How would they respond? Is she beautiful in your eyes and theirs? Or is she barely even noticeable? Like Carrie said, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I grew up in a non-Christian family. We had an idyllic childhood, a very successful family. Both parents uh, were professionals. Um, We worked hard, and uh, we got good results from our hard work. Grew up going to the Unitarian Church. Um, And so in some ways, Christianity was just kind of not even noticeable to me. And sadly, as I got older and I looked at Christians and the Christian churches I saw around me, I thought, you know what? That looks more like hell than heaven. It was not attractive in the sense that, that every time I would open up the, 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 the Houston Chronicle, that's our, our paper, and I would see the headlines with you know, evangelical leaders or, or Southern Baptists or Christians, it was usually with the words financial extortion or sexual immorality underneath it. I thought, okay, these Christians, this isn't hypocrisy. This is dangerous and destructive and delusional. Uh, and I actually wanted to make a lot of money in international business, so I went to Washington, D.C., went to a, a good school up there for international relations, and I started a philosophy club, uh, and I was evangelist before I was a Christian. I would lead people to atheism, because I was so convinced that, you know, it was, it was religion that was undermining uh, and enslaving the masses, and we needed reason and hard work. Uh, but in God's grace, at the age of 22, through his severe mercies, that idyllic childhood kind of fell apart, the Lord my dad went bankrupt, mental illness, adultery, divorce. But all those, the Lord used these severe mercies in my family to convert my mom, who moved to Washington, D.C. while we were in college. And she became a Christian and started attending this church called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And she asked me to come to church with her for her Mother's Day gift. And so I walked into church on May 1997 on Mother's Day and, uh, and started going to that church every Sunday with mom and I just encouraged her. And what struck me about that church was the way they loved one another. It was weird, but in a compelling, attractive way. And the way they loved me and the way they loved my mom. And the preacher was weird. He was, you know, in my world of view, it just didn't make sense. He was articulate, intelligent, had a PhD from Cambridge, but he was a Southern Baptist evangelical fundamentalist. And I was like, this is a false dichotomy, an intelligent Southern Baptist, an articulate evangelical. I was intrigued. And so I started studying the Bible with him. And long story short, the Lord used that church to convert me. And it wasn't that pastor, Mark, that was his name, uh, uh, though, I mean, that was my father in the faith in some ways. But fundamentally, it was, it was the corporate witness of that church, their corporate love and purity and unity that the, the Lord used to convert me. 
And uh, I, remember, I remember as a new Christian reading 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, 12, where Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that was me, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I realized, like, that's, just, that's just Peter echoing Jesus in his first public sermon on the mount, where he says, y'all, you know, good Texas word, but also in, in the Greek, it's plural, you all, y'all, be salt, be light, be a city on the hill, that they may see my father's good works and glorify him in heaven. I realized that the church was to be a display of God's glory, of his love, of his purity, and his main means to make disciples, like me. But in God's mysterious providence, making disciples and teaching them everything Jesus has commanded, right, that great commission, it's, it's not a quick process, is it? It's like raising kids. All right, I love being the husband of Terabeth and the father of our five children, ages 10, 13, 15, 17, and 21. Three girls, two boys. It's the greatest existential experience and blessing I've had as a Christian, being part of a family. But often I'll look at my kids and I'll think, oh Lord, are they going to reach a sufficient level of maturity in the 18 years that I have them in my home to, to not just thrive, but even survive? You know, uh, Do they have the wisdom, the, the prudence, the discretion, the discernment uh, to make good choices? And you know, that's after 18 years of living in my home. I'm an elder at CHBC, director of Nine Marks, healthy churches, right? And even I'm terrified as I watch them. Now my kids are good kids, and my, my 21-year-old just graduated from college, and she wants to get baptized, praise the Lord, so... I'm cautiously optimistic, but it's, you know, raising these five kids, even after 21 years, it's a process that demands time and patience and teaching and a family. It's a glorious, messy, hard, joyful, hard, messy, happy, hard experience. But if we do it well by God's grace, it can bear great gospel fruit. And God has created his church just like you create the Townsend family, to be the family, the original ecosystem by which this growth happens. You see, beloved, in this present evil age, life is war. Satan is warring for the souls of our families, of our neighbors. But the good news is we know God wins. Matthew 16 says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? We will see, according to Revelation 21 and 22, we will see God face to face. Amen. But until then, the gospel is going to be displayed and protected and guarded and guided and made visible through the local church. This is the most powerful weapon in the army of the Lamb, if it's healthy, right? If we can unlock the power of the church, there is no better means to fulfill the Great Commission. Why? God's word is proclaimed, reverberating in the body of the believers as they are gathered. And then those believers, they scatter out those doors into the neighborhoods, into the schools, into the communities, uh, acting as salt and light in a dark world. Friends, this is true power. And it's why a biblical vision of the church is so important. Now, unfortunately, remember that question I started with? Unfortunately, this isn't everyone's experience in the church. I think in my country, in the United States of America, among Christian evangelicalism, the local church is often, at best, just assumed, but often forgotten as a central part of one's kind of Christian individual discipleship life. 
So for example, many college students don't go to church because honestly, the parachurch ministries are better and more fruitful for their individual discipleship and more connected with their community. Or after college, we're just too busy. There's not really a good church around anyway, and we can find better ways to grow a minister. But the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, paints a different picture. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see an astounding portrait of God's new society, that is the church, living together and fulfilling God's purposes as non-believers are converted, as believers are built up, and God is glorified through the communion and life together of this new society that he creates through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as your guest preacher, my heart's desire today is simply two things. I want to encourage you with this biblical vision of the local church. And then number two, I want to highlight the blessings that come when we embrace this vision in our own discipleship. And to do that, we're going to go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians to capture God's picture, God's vision of the church. And I want us to see five things about this new society, the church. These are kind of the the five points of the uh, the exegetical sermon outline, and then we'll have four points of application. Uh, About this new society, I want you to see, number one, its foundation and construction. It's point one in chapters one and two. Uh, It's it's, it's, uh, purpose, chapter three, the results chapter four and five, and then the power behind this new society. So those five things. And then we'll finish with four practical blessings that come when we individually commit to a local church, whether it be in Sao Paulo or Washington, D.C. or wherever, wherever we live as a central part of our own discipleship. But first, let's start with that gospel foundation, this new society. What's the foundation? In chapter one, we see the gospel foundation upon which God builds this new society right there in the opening verses. So let me, I'm just gonna read the first 10 verses of, uh, of, of Ephesians. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible. Like I said, we're going to do a flyover, uh, so um, uh, I will refer to them, but you can just listen as well if that's easier. I'm going to start in the first, uh, uh, first chapter, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, here it is, the gospel. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians, this whole book, is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Vertically, Christ reconciles all believers to himself. And then horizontally, uh, he reconciles all believers, both Jew and Gentile, to one another through the church. The power driving this reconciliation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That's what we see right here in these opening verses. He gives us, Paul gives us the foundation for our hope, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, the gospel, the redemption that comes through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins through his grace. 
My friends, this gospel, this is our only hope. This is the only reason to get out of bed in the morning, ultimately. It's the single mark that defines what is a true Christian and a true church or not. It's the one non-negotiable. Why? Well, because God always creates, God always saves through his word. Right? We see that throughout the whole pages of, of Scripture, from Genesis 1, where God speaks and all of creation comes into being, right? Uh, to John 1, where that word becomes flesh and lives among us. The warp and woof, the pattern of the Bible is that God always saves through his word. This is why the gospel is so essential. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to have a biblical church, a supernatural community of redeemed sinners living together for God's glory. But what is that gospel? It's the good news. It's it's the foundation to this new society God's created. It's this idea that God is the holy and just creator. We see that right there in Genesis 1 and 2. But we have rebelled against him. We said, you know what? I want to be king. Don't want to submit to the king. I'm king. That's Genesis 3 and the rest of the story. But then God spends the rest of the Bible seeking to redeem and rescue and restore his people. He sends ultimately his son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty that we deserve. So condemned, Jesus stood in our place. That's what we mean by substitution, right? Uh, Though he had no sin, Jesus became sin so that we might become righteous and be declared not guilty in God's sight. And this gift of undeserving grace, this good news, it's offered freely to everyone, who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That means Jesus meets us at the intersection of darkness and light. And then he invites us into the family of God, into the church, to be adopted as his children, to sit at his dinner table, if we trust and follow him. And this gospel of reconciliation is the foundation of everything Paul says and does. And notice how Jesus and the church are central to this gospel foundation. Look at, the last, look at the last two verses of chapter one, right? At the end of Ephesians one, in verse 22 and 23, Paul puts it all together. He says, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, so God gives the gospel and, and Jesus, verse 22, to, to build his church, to be his body, verse 23, to, to express and, and, and embody the fullness of God. So, so do you see the connection? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. That's the gospel. And we have genuine, joy-filled fellowship with God and with one another if we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. Now, isn't this a beautiful picture of the church and the gospel together. The church is this blood-bought, supernatural community that grounds us in real relationship with our creator and with one another. So in God's economy, the gospel alone serves as the foundation on which he builds his new society, the church. And how does he build this new society? Well, he creates it himself. It's a supernatural work, a supernatural construction. That's point two. We see that construction of this new society in chapter two. And the first supernatural creation is in the lives of individual Christians. We as individual Christians have a new identity in the gospel of Christ. And it has nothing to do with us and our worth or our works. We see that right there in Ephesians 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. Paul writes, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what makes Christianity different from every other single religion and philosophy in the world. It is not our works, but the works of God alone that save us and make us new. No other religion or philosophy claims that. And what happens? God works through Christ to use us to construct the church as a display of his glory and power. That's the rest of chapter 2. This is going to be a little bit of a long reading, but just watch this picture. Just imagine a construction site as I'm reading these words, and God is building this construction site, this beautiful church. Here it is, reading from Ephesians 2, uh, verse 12 and forward. Here's what it is. Okay. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, that's bad news. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's good news. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the gospel that we just talked about. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The gospel, through the blood of Jesus Christ, verse 13, brings us into a new supernatural community of peace. It gives us a new identity. It makes us citizens, members of the household of God. And through Christ, the cornerstone, God constructs his new society. It's a building, a structure, a holy temple. Beloved, are you beginning to see the picture that Paul is painting here of the church? It's an amazing creation, right? It's a supernatural construction site. The church is being literally built up from Jew and Gentile, being reconciled together through Christ's blood. So God lays the foundation, the gospel. He constructs this new society, the church, the dwelling place of God. And what's the purpose of this new society? Well, Paul tells us that in the next chapter, chapter 3. As we look at chapter 3, keep in mind this picture, this supernatural construction site of the church. It's important context and background. In verses 1 through 9, Paul gives a brief aside to lay out his credentials, his authority to say the things that he does. And then he goes on to say the purpose of God's new society right there in verse 10. That the, world might know, uh, that the world might know the multifaceted wisdom of God through the church. That's the key verse. We're going to start reading in verse 8 of chapter 3. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That, that phrase through the church, that's, that's an amazing phrase. This is the last thing that I would expect to see right there in that line. Now, God's going to display his wisdom to the world and the watching authorities throughout the whole universe through, fill in the blank. You know, I'd put something like creation, right? I mean, you guys have a beautiful country. I'm just shocked at just the, the vegetation, the, the, the trees, the, the, the landscape, the countryside. I was here a few years ago. This is my second visit. Uh, Rick took me and my son to a pot of chi. It was like the Garden of Eden restored. I mean, it literally was like, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 and uh, creation, high definition, surround, sound. It was incredible. Now, that's what I would expect maybe here. God's going to display his manifold wisdom to the world through his beautiful creation. Now, of course, he does do that. We see that in other places, you know, Psalm 19. Creation does display God's glory. But here, what this, Bible, what this text is saying is that he has chosen the church to display his manifold wisdom to the powers in the heavenly places. That just doesn't make sense to me. Again, as I'm a rationalist by, by, by training, right? Fallen sinful people like you and me would display his wisdom? It just doesn't make sense apart from saving faith. Ephesians 3.10, in many ways, serves as the pinnacle of this letter, the centerpiece, that God's church displays his wisdom to the world. Doesn't make sense to me, but that's what the Bible says, and it's the central belief for a biblical understanding of the church. And we see the goal of all this clearly in verse 21. What is the goal of all this? To give glory to God the Father in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations. Look there, if you have your Bibles open, Ephesians 3, chapter 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so do you see the significance of this, my friends? What is the church? You know, you walk out of the doors, your neighbor says, what was the sermon on today? How's about the church? Well, what's the church? How are you going to answer that? According to the Bible, the church is an outpost of heaven. It is the dwelling place of God. That's Paul's words in Ephesians 2. So this means that we, the church of of King Jesus, we are an embassy for the kingdom of God, for heaven. We are ambassadors representing King Jesus here on planet Earth. I I love working in Washington, D.C. Like I said, I'm originally from Texas, been in D.C. since 1993. It's the the capital of the United States. In some ways, it's the political center of the kingdom of man. Uh, Most every country in the world has an embassy or a consulate there. There's great history. There's great architecture. Uh, It's a beautiful city. Come and visit us. We have a guest room. I honestly would love to have you all. We're five blocks from the U.S. capital, the churches. Um, But it's a temporal city. Everything about that city, like I just said, focuses on the kingdom of man. Every day I'm right there. The church where we live is five blocks from the U.S. Capitol. So every day I can see from my house or I walk, I can see the the Capitol. I can see the Supreme Court, which is literally next door, the Library of Congress. I'm thankful to be there. And I'm thankful that we have members of our church who are working in all those buildings. You know, being salt and light, I think that's really important. But personally, I'm even more thankful that I have the privilege to walk into the one embassy in town, the church, whose kingdom will not fall. 
whose king is not marred by corruption, whose economy will not falter because of inflation or war, and whose treasury will not fail. Oh, beloved, we all serve this king, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And we might be wrong about a certain political candidate and his political party, but we are certain about Jesus and his church. So our faith is ultimately not about us, our best individual life now. It's about us together to be a display of his glory. Healthy churches are the best domestic policy and foreign policy out there for our countries, aren't they? Whether it's the United States or Brazil. My friends, this vision of the church, it's God's. It's not mine. It's not nine marks, Mark Dever. It's God's plan for our good and for his glory. And what's the result, right? What comes from this new society? Well, it results in disciples being made who walk in a way that is worthy of God and his glory. That's what we see right after chapter 3 in Ephesians 4 and 5. So the results right there at this new society, right there in Ephesians 4 verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Just a few verses later, uh, write down and study these later, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. Rather, here are the results, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's y'all, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, each member, is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And chapter 5 just reinforces that exact same idea. Again, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So do you see what God is doing? Through the power of the gospel, God is constructing a new society to display his glory. Its foundation is not our works, but Christ's work on the cross. But the result is good works in us, the good works of the body of Christ, right? Evangelism, bringing non-Christians to Christ, and discipling, building Christians up in Christ. It's the many one another commands that Paul prescribes here and throughout his other letters. And notice, finally, the power driving this new society. Paul ends in chapter 6, where he began. The power of all this is God. You see that in verse 10, 4 especially, the famous armor of God passages. I won't read it for time's sake. But there we see that it is God's strength, his armor, that powers this new society. In him we stand and find our power for the mission. All right, guys, I knew it was going to be fast and furious, but there it is. We have just run through the whole book of Ephesians. Well done. A biblical vision of God's new society, its foundation Chapter 1, the gospel, its construction, Ephesians 2, God does it, its purpose to display his manifold wisdom to the world, its results, chapters 4 and 5, that we walk manner in the manner worthy of Jesus in love, and its power, again, the power of God. So, all right, so what, Ryan? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for our local church? Well, chapter 4 and 5, I think, gave us the heart of our application. So if you don't do anything else today, go home and read chapter 4 and 5 and just say to yourself, how do I do this if I'm not a member of a local church? If you take nothing else from the rest of the sermon, just wrestle with chapters 4 and 5 and think, what does this mean for you? Talk to one another about that. Uh, It means that you need to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ together. Did you catch that? Because we are members. That's just parts, right? The Greek word for member, it's it's the same as the English word. To be a member means a part of the body. We are part of Christ's body. We are members. And all these commands from Paul and Jesus, the one another's and everything, can only happen when we commit to live together as a family 
locally, geographically. That's how we are made as one body. So I would argue that scripture calls us to join a church, a local church, on the basis of committed love. Okay, there's the headline application, committed love, committed love, committed love. Jesus' new commandment, right? Jesus says in John 13, 34, you can write this verse down too, meditate on this. A new commandment I give to you, this is right before, this is Thursday night before he dies on Friday. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So my main application point in two words is committed love. That's what this means for you. That's what we're talking about. Family, covenant, commitment. Even when it's messy, till death do us part, we are committed in love. So for Christians at its simplest, this means that you should covenant, that means join, with a healthy church in your area, wherever you live, for your good and God's glory. The local church is to be the center, the hub of your Christian discipleship. It's God's plan to bring him glory. You're his bride, but it's a you, plural, again, y'all. So you should join and commit to a local church out of obedience to scripture and love for the individual Christian brothers and sisters that God has put around you. It's the essence of love, isn't it? To commit to someone, even when it's hard and messy. But that's what families do. We love one another and commit for better or worse. The main idea here is simple. If you are a Christian, God's purpose in saving you is that you might bring glory to him through the life you live in communion with other Christians. If you do not join yourself with a body of believers in order to do that, you have failed to live out what the Bible says is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us together as a part of a church community bringing glory to God through our lives. I believe that's the weight of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. And I pray that it bring you great encouragement, both individually and corporately, to see this amazing plan that God is performing for us for his glory. I mean, wow. So let me give you four biblical reasons to wrap us up here why you need to be part of a local church. These are the tangible benefits and practical application to this biblical vision of the church of coveting together with a group of other believers in your area. If you're already a member of the church, may this encourage you and remind you of its importance in your life and strengthen your own walk with Jesus. If you're not a member of a church, ask yourself just one simple question. Why not? Why am I convinced from scripture that I should not be a part of a church? If you're, not a non, if you're a non-Christian, praise the Lord you're here. We hope you're welcome. Uh, I pray that this vision of the church help you see the supernatural beauty of the church and that you may come to know God through the witness of a loving church. Talk to me afterwards if you have any questions about this gospel. Here you go. Four reasons, though, to wrap up to, to join a church. First, join a church for non-Christians. Join a church for non-Christians. You see, when Christians join a local church and live faithfully according to that word in that region that they live, they collectively help to clarify to non-Christians what Christianity really looks like. As Christians command to love and follow Jesus' example, we have the ability in our ministries to bring light into the darkness, just like Jesus did when he embraced the world's hurt and sorrow. And this will encourage and serve fellow believers, but will also be a wonderful light in the darkness to the unbelieving world. So that means that while unbelievers are always encouraged to come to church, they cannot be members. The church consists of Christians only. And this actually helps evangelism. It makes clear who is a Christian and who is not. 
It allows a clear light to shine in the darkness. This will be attractive in the best, most biblical sense of the world. Again, that was my testimony. Hated Jesus because of unhealthy churches? That looks like hell. Can you love Jesus because of a healthy church? That looks weird, but it's attractive. The church is the best evangelism program, the most powerful weapon in the army of the Lamb. So join a church for non-Christians. Number two, and this is the longest point, and then the last two will be a quick conclusion. But join a church for Christians. Join a church for Christians. There's lots we can say on this. Come to the Sunday school right afterwards to learn some more. Uh, Why we'll be spending this extensively. But let me give you just three reasons right now. Three blessings, let's call them. Three blessings, tangible benefits, right? Membership has its benefits. What are the three blessings uh, when we covenant together? Number one, join a church for accountability, right? God never intended for his children to live as solo Christians, so accountability. Hebrews 3, 12, 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, by joining a church, I'm saying, I can't do this by myself. I need other Christians to help me. I remember my first Friday night as a new Christian. I was 23 years old. I was bartending in Georgetown uh, at a bar, making $300 cash a night, just living a life of worldliness. Um, and I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a new Christian. I walked into Mark Dever, study Mark pastor. And I said, um, Mark, uh, what do Christians do on Friday nights? Because I knew what I used to do on Friday nights. I was like, I can't do that anymore. But you see, that, that church is, is what I needed to kind of not just, they not just brought me to Christ, but then they helped me figure out what to do on Friday nights and Saturday and Sunday and Monday. And I still need that church 24 years later to figure out uh, what do I do now as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. I need that church. I need that accountability, right? And the reason I figured out what to do on that Friday night is because there was a church that I was committed to. There were real people who were holding me accountable, but they did it in a loving way. That night, I took a walk with Aaron Minikoff around the Capitol, and then we started reading Knowing God together, and he just had lunch with me every, every week. So that was just one example, right? You want to join a church because you can't do this by yourself, and you cannot be held accountable if people don't know who you are. I mean, it's that simple. You have to be involved in the lives of others in order for us to help you. Churches, therefore, should consist of Christians who are willing to hold one another accountable, to be involved in the lives of others, and if necessary, to discipline a fellow member in love who is unrepentant of sin. So in this sense, the church, the local church, acts like a spiritual assurance of salvation cooperative. And now, friends, accountability is not a silver bullet. There will always be sin in churches because there will always be sinners in churches. And we should never overlook abuses of accountability and authority, right? Genesis 1 and 2, authority is a good and dangerous gift. And good authority is the most beautiful picture of who God is, right? Think of the good marriage, the good parents, the good coaches, the good teachers, right? There's no better picture of the image of God than authority rightly used in the home. And there's no greater offense and heinous sin against God than authority abuse in the marriages, in homes, in churches. Uh, and so we have to be careful with accountability. But sin does not thrive in the light. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we understand that we are all a pit of vipers. That's what a church is. But we know we're a pit of vipers, right? And so we are quick to encourage one another when we see evidences of grace not to flatter. The world flatters. Christians encourage. We're quick to uh, speak the truth in love and, and constructively exhort and correct and rebuke uh, when, when we need it, right? Not the world kind of gossips and destroys and, and, and judges in, in a harsh, 
breaking way, but right for the Christian church, conflict's an opportunity to glorify God, serve others, and be made like Christ. But that only happens when we're committed, when we're willing to encourage and love, and when we're willing to submit and receive correction, both giving and receiving. That's the kind of culture you want, but it only happens if you have committed love. If you're willing to say, I'll submit to that correction, and I'm going to, by the way, though, it's going to go two ways. If I see you being stupid, I'm going to correct you in love. Second benefit, join a church. That was the first reason is, is accountability. For the Christian, though, you also get love, encouragement, and discipleship. This is, a, this is a, a, the, the idea that stronger and weaker Christians need one another. Stronger and weaker Christians need one another. Um, I grew up in Texas, uh, but we traveled a lot every summer. Uh, we did, we were inter- I was a scouting, did international scout camps. It was pretty cool. One of them was in, uh, in London. Uh, well, it was in England. We flew into London. I'm a twin. I have a twin brother. He became a Christian six months after I did. It's kind of cool. But anyway, um, we're, we've been best friends since day one. We're driving uh, through the English countryside, and uh, we remember I saw a flock of sheep uh, on the road. And it was the first time in my life I had ever seen a flock of sheep. Like I said, I'm from Texas. We have longhorn cattle, you know, big cows with, with horns, but not, not sheep. And they were literally in the road, so we couldn't, do, we couldn't go anywhere. So we parked the car and I remember we, we climbed up and we were sitting on the roof, and we were just a bunch of dumb high school boys. We were just laughing, throwing things at them. That was not good. But anyway, what, what, was, what was funny while we were laughing is because these sheep uh, were, were, were just dumb. And I remember that I, I thought sheep were white. Sheep are not white. They're dirty. And, 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 and they're dumb. They, they, were, they were walking down the, this, this road, but they were, they, some were falling to the ditch, right? Some were going the wrong way. Uh, it was just hilarious, again, as an immature high school boy watching this stuff. But what was amazing, after about 10 or 15 minutes, through the help of the, sh- the sheep dogs that were running around them and the shepherd, those dumb, dirty sheep stumbled down the road in the right direction eventually and made it into the, to the sheep pen. Well, you see, my friends, that, that, that's us. We're dumb, dirty sheep that bite at one another and, and are easily swayed off the path that, that, that when we don't get something that we want. And we, we, we fall into ditches. We go the wrong way. But by God's grace, by being together in a flock, we can make it down the road altogether. So, so what I'm saying is very simple. We're better stuck in the middle of the flock, even if it slows us down in our own discipleship and it inconveniences our lives now. Why? Well, friends, if you know your own heart well, you know that it's actually more dangerous to be on the, alone or on the edge of the flock because we're prone to wonder, where do the wolves live? On the edge. It's true. I guarantee it. Joining a church will slow you down and inconvenience your life. It will make it harder. It will make it messier. It will be costly. But have you ever considered the fact that maybe in God's plan, even though it might not be your plan, maybe in God's plan, he wants to slow you down so that you can kind of lock arms with others and help speed them up. Older men and women in the faith are commanded by Paul to disciple and encourage young children, younger Christians, Titus 2. Younger Christians are also called to care for and love older Christians. So in the church, there's no such thing as an individual Christian. God has bound us together as one body in Christ and commanded us to care for one another. Where do you see that, right, in Scripture? Hebrews 10, 24, right? Write this verse down and meditate on this. 10, 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. That word assembling, that's where we get our word ecclesia. That, that's the word church. Not forsaking our own churching together. The word church literally means to assemble. It is the assembly. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why you need to physically assemble on the Lord's day. That's what that word means. 
So stronger and weaker Christians need to make their love for Christ definite and committed by loving one another in a purposely committed fashion. You remember all the one another commands that Jesus and Paul gave? Again, we're going to be looking at this in Sunday school. To love one another as Christ has loved us. To speak the truth in love. To outdo one another in giving honor. Covenanting together in a local church is what makes all that possible. I don't know how you can do that unless you've committed to a local body of believers. So we should join a church for Christians because it helps with accountability, with discipleship, encouragement, and love. All right, I'm going to skip the, uh, the last point on this one. I'm going to go to reason three and four, which will be brief and we'll conclude. Um, reason three, join a church for church leaders. Join a church for church leaders. So we've joined a church for non-Christians, for Christians. Reason number three, join a church for church leaders. Some churches claim to have thousands of members. This is really popular, particularly in kind of the cultural Christianity areas, like in the south of the United States. They'll have thousands of members, but they only have a small percentage of those members actually attending the church on any given Sunday. So one question is, okay, what happened to those other members? Or there's often the other end of the spectrum where church has lots of folks attending, but they never join, and they never put themselves under the authority of the church. For church leaders, this is a sobering reality, especially since the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New, consistently hold leaders, church leaders, pastors accountable for shepherding the flock and knowing each sheep. I can give you a lot of examples on this, but let me just give you one example here. This is really important. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17. Again, write this verse down and go and meditate. Why do I need to join a church? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, friends, this is, this is important. That means that on the final day of judgment, Scripture teaches that we here, the, the pastors or or whoever's, your deacons, your elders, uh, that we pastors will hold the hands of the people who are entrusted to our care and our flock. So I have a, some responsibility to you all, but I've got 760 members of my church that I've covenanted with, and that's who, that's who the author of Hebrews is talking about right here. I'm going to hold the hands of those 760 sheep, and he's going to say, did you faithfully shepherd these people? I will have to give an account for those. Now, how can we as elders, as pastors, give an account for sheep if we don't even know who they are, if they don't come to church, if they're unwilling to formally join? They say, I will not submit to the formal care and authority of the church. Now, of course, we can do some stuff, and that's good, but it limits what we can do as pastors, and it actually puts us in jeopardy if we don't teach that they should kind of come and be a part of the family so that, again, good authority protects and provides and loves and serves. It's a formidable yet glorious calling. It's exactly how our great shepherd cares for us. And it's why he's called every church to have godly leaders, to gather and protect the flock, to minister the word of God, and to equip the saints for ministry. And friends, this is a beautiful exhibit of God's kindness and wisdom. It's part of God's vision for the local church. So join a church for your leaders. And finally, to conclude, join a church for God. Join a church for God. Join a church for God. It's interesting, if you look through the book of Acts, uh, it's the Lord who adds people to their number, and being added to the Christian's number meant being identified as the church. And the most striking illustration of this connection between God and the church takes place in Acts 9. It's the story of Paul's conversion. And at this time, he's called Saul. He's on the road to Damascus. You remember what he's going to do? To kill and persecute Christians. And then Jesus appears to Saul, and Saul literally falls to the ground. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute those Christians? 
He doesn't even say, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute the church? So that's what he was going to do. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so closely and clearly identifies with the church that he refers to that congregation in Damascus as me. That's why I think Paul got his image of the church as the body of Christ. His first Christian conversation, I think, had that, that image in it. And we see that later in Acts 20. Again, Acts 20. It says that the church is the body of Christ and that God bought the church with his own blood. Oh, beloved, I don't know all the bits of your life and how you've been brought up to regard the church. But in the New Testament, I can tell you that the church, it's regarded as the body of Christ, bought with his own blood. This is what God is about. So many of the things that we understand to be Christian are not simply individualism, but are actually virtues that express themselves in relationship with other people. So ultimately, we want to be part of a local church for God. My friends, that's it. You made it through. Good job. A biblical vision of the church and our life together. It's both a challenge and a comfort, isn't it? It's a challenge because biblically we have a clear responsibility for one another, just like parents and children have a clear responsibility to be a part of a family. But it's also a comfort because we know that we will also be cared for, loved for, and prayed for by God's family. My prayer is at the least you've begun to understand the beauty and power of Christ in the church. And may God give you the joy and the passion to continue the conversation with your pastors your deacons, your church leaders, your family with one another for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church, for your bride. Grow our love for you and your church that our lives together may be a wonderful display of your glory to the watching dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.